I'm Esther Almar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. This Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM 103.5 Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR, Washington, D.C., We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and now in London. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. The Spin continues our discussion series, Reimagining Resistance in the Era of Number 45. In part one, Strike One, March 8th, International Women's Day, a national strike. 24 hours without women in America. We explore resistance strategy. And in part two, men, activism and resistance in the era of Trump, we talk the deadly allure of number 45's presidential toxic masculinity. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Professor Blair Kelly and Joan Morgan. Joan Morgan is a veteran cultural critic. She coined the term hip-hop feminism and is author of the critically acclaimed When Chickenheads Come Home to Roost, A Hip-Hop Feminist Breaks It Down. Professor Blair Kelly is a scholar and author. Professor Kelly is Associate Professor of History at North Carolina State University and author of Right to Ride, Streetcar Boycotts and African-American Citizenship in the Era of Plessy versus Ferguson which won the 2010 Letitia Woods Brown Best Book Award from the Association of Black Women Historians. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hello. Hello. Sandra Bland would have been 30 years old this week. She is, I still say is, even though past tense she was. She was a black woman who died in police custody on July 13th, 2015, two days after being pulled over by a white police officer for a minor traffic violation. Sandra Bland was found hanged in a cell in Waller County, Texas. Her death was classified as suicide by the county coroner. Her family dispute she committed suicide, and there was no indictment in connection with her death. Hers is one life in a world where black women's bodies are vulnerable to the violence of the state, the silence of too much of white society, and made visible by the advocacy of predominantly black women fighting to uphold her memory and those of so many others seeking justice for her life. Sandra Bland was an activist, and it is activists, scholars, and feminists who have come together to make a major call on March 8th, International Women's Day, for a one-day national strike in the United States calling on precedent strikes set by women rising up in Poland and Europe, across Latin America and in Liberia, West Africa, where women held sex strikes. The call is to take national action, 24 hours without a single woman in America. So this announcement of a national general strike comes on the heels of the Women's March on Washington that brought 2.5 million women, their families and some men, onto the streets to raise their voices from across America and in seven different countries from around the world. In a powerful piece in The Guardian, the national strike organizers place the strike in a global context, and they explain how strikes in Poland and Latin America highlighted intimate partner violence and the violence of the state, for example, income inequality or a debt economy. 
They highlighted the failures of American women's movements that have excluded women of colour and their concerns. In Reimagining Resistance, we're exploring what resistance should look like in this era of the United States' 45th president. We're asking questions about changing tactics, developing new strategies, and we're exploring unlikely coalitions. The strike highlights the power of policy to transform or damage women's lives, and policies passed by politicians, local and national and presidential. 53% of white women voted for the 45th president of the United States. And in his latest interview, number 45 accuses those who oppose him of pulling the, quote, racist card, unquote, simply because he is a Republican. Listen. They're saying that you're anti-Muslim. They're saying that you're anti-black. They're saying that you're anti-poor. Do you respond? Because you do come back. I always respond. I mean, but it, does it hurt well, your a, feelings that they are making you into a hater? No, because they always do it. The first thing they do with the Republicans or conservatives is the racist card. They pull out the racist card. They always do that, not just me. I mean, they do it with everybody. And I see that. And once you know that, you feel a lot better about it. Now, that statement, of course, ignores the damaging policies of Reaganomics and even those of Bill Clinton, not a Republican. If policy matters, which means local and national and presidential politics matter too, should a national strike include active calls for white liberal progressive women to engage, address and deal with a 53% their white Republican voting sisters that helped elect a fascist into a seat of extraordinary power? That labor is about engaging on a more personal and intimate level in dismantling white supremacy via electoral presidential politics. In America's history of electoral politics, white women have traditionally voted Republican. Black women voted Democrat. In this era of number 45, should resistance include a call for white women to engage in this particular emotional labor? And what should resistance look like for women of color, for black women? Kirsten Westervalli, associate editor for The Root, wrote a piece called The Radical Uses of Anger, in which she states, all white women aren't the enemy, but white supremacy always is, unquote. She notes a, quote, refusal to acknowledge that white women have always been complicit in the oppression of women of color. They have been beneficiaries and perpetrators of a genocidal system that continues to shapeshift in transparent attempts to disguise itself, unquote. The national strike organizers are primarily women of color. They are scholars and authors and activists and feminists. They are, just to make sure we respect who is calling this out, they are Linda Martin Alkoff, Sinzia Arutza, Tithi Bachacharya, Nancy Fraser, Barbara Ranzi, Razmea Youssef Oday, and the iconic Angela Davis. Lyndon Martin Alkoff is a professor of philosophy at Hunter College and the CUNY Graduate Center and the author of Visible Identities, Race, Gender and the Self. Sinzia Arutza is an assistant professor of philosophy at the New School for Social Research in New York and a feminist and socialist activist. She's the author of Dangerous Liaisons, The Marriages and Divorces of Marxism and Feminism. Tithi Bhattacharya teaches history at Purdue University, and her first book is called The Sentinels of Culture, Class, Education, and the Colonial Intellectual in Bengal. Nancy Fraser is Professor of Philosophy and Politics at the New School for Social Research in New York. Barbara Ransby is a historian, writer, and longtime activist. She's a distinguished professor of African-American studies, gender, and women's studies, and history at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Kianga Yamata-Taylor is assistant professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton and author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, 
Razmia Youssef Oday is the Associate Professor of the Arab American Action Network, leader of that group's Arab Women's Committee, and a former member of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Angela Davis is a political activist, writer, and scholar. She's Distinguished Professor Emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and founder of Critical Resistance. So let's talk reimagining resistance in the era of number 45 with this call of a national general strike on International Women's Day. Blair Kelly, let me start with you. Your thoughts. I think this is an excellent thing. I'm excited to hear Barbara Ramsey and to have read Barbara Ramsey's name among those that you called just now as organizing these efforts. Barbara Ramsey is a sister historian and really a a wonderful mentor to so many of us. I think here of her work on Ella Baker and the ways in which Ella Baker always insisted on movement, right? So in different time periods, in different crises, as African-Americans and those who were concerned about those causes of inequality for African-Americans in general, Ella Baker was always working in alliance with different kinds of organizations, different kinds of people, different spaces over different times. There was never easy work for her. She was never in that right body to do that work, but she kept on doing it. The invisibility of black women throughout her lifetime made that work much harder, but she kept on doing it. So I think this moment, and Barbara Ransby is the biographer of Ella Baker, one of the, the best biographies of, of, of that wonderful activist and North Carolinian that I'm, I'm proud to teach about and talk about all the time. So I think movement is always necessary. And so I am proud to see movement happening now. I am proud to see women's leadership in this moment of crisis It's a wonderful frame to think both deep and wide about the possibilities of movement, to look to the international, to look to different movements around the world as models. And so it's in a time when it's not exactly clear what can be done, doing is the essential first step. And so I'm glad to see it. Joe Morgan, your thoughts? I'm excited about the news of this march for several reasons. I was out of the country for the Women's March, but just the beauty of being on a very, very small island and watching with them the images and hearing news about the women's arches, that you got to feel the impact of what it was like for not just people around the world to be moving in solidarity, but the heightening of a kind of global consciousness and a need to do something and that the awareness that number 45 is not only the United States burden, but that his presence has negative ramifications across the world. I think that for the United States to be looking globally for models for movement making and movement building is incredibly encouraging because we often frame resistance on very African-American civil rights terms and frameworks, and that's taken us pretty far in some ways and then not far enough in other ways. So looking for these other models is really important. I think that Blair hit it on the head. It's like, we don't know what this thing is. Like No one imagined themselves here. No one has lived through this particular iteration of the kind of nonsense that number 45 brings, the sort of 
blatant disrespect for even democratic process and protocol is really unnerving. And so we need to do something so that we're not making ourselves absolutely insane, so that the ability to channel that anxiety and that fear and that lack of knowing into action is critical. And I'm so heartened to see the news about this march. I think it's fantastic. I'm particularly grateful for a global context, because to pick up on Joan's point, I have found in too many ways a context that somebody sometimes claims globality, but sits in very specific American spaces and frameworks, and therefore leaves no room for the kind of global coalitions that move us forward and expand us further. I really am excited about a chance to learn more about the global precedents that this strike draws from as a way of really building a kind of linking arms and aims, to quote Susan Taylor's wonderful phrase, and to create real senses of connection with women all over the world. So let me ask you both this. The national strike has been called by predominantly women of color. And one of the questions that was raised right after the march, and we saw this in Kirsten West Savali's piece, is this question of the use of radical anger and also the reality of what this means for that white liberal progressive part of the sisterhood. I think anything led by women of color is automatically great for everybody because, to quote Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay, this group is the margin of the margins in that sense. So I wonder what your thoughts on the idea of requiring liberal white progressive women who claim sisterhood in this moment to actively engage their white Republican sisters whose actions certainly helped us be in this discussion in this moment. Blair Kelly. I think it's incredibly important to do that work. If coalition is at all useful to us, then making sure that the white women who are literally sisters with people who voted for 45, who vote Republican pretty regularly, who vote against the interests of poor women, working women, women interested in full reproductive rights, to really have those conversations. In the days after the election, there were lots of people who showed up all of a sudden in my office to to cry and to ask me what to do. And I found those those conversations very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I like the way you say interesting. Wondering why they thought I would be (laughs) in this moment. And then surely in each and every one of those conversations, someone revealed that, well, my sister-in-law or my niece or my aunt or my father or my uncle or someone in my family voted for him. And I was just so embarrassed and it was hard to talk about it and... And I'm thinking, you know, my uncle and my father and my sister and my niece and my aunt didn't vote for this person. They understand fully, no matter where they are in their life or where they were positioned, that the sort of toxicity that was being offered up was a very particular thing that we recognized and saw as dangerous. And so if you are in a community, a family of people that you are afraid to talk about these hard topics with, then that's the work, 
right? You, you need to, you know, leadership in place. That's what we call in academia when you're trying to get somebody to work in the spot where they're already standing. Go ahead and lead your community of family, of church folk, of your neighborhood. Lead those hard conversations because we have hard conversations all the time as women of color with people that we may or may not want to be standing next to. But we do that work because it's a necessary work to build coalition. And so I'd suggest that they get started to stop crying, stop looking for a black bosom to lay your head on, and instead really get to work. Get to work. Joe Morgan? The interesting thing to me here is that there is nothing new about this. There is nothing new about this. Black feminists have been saying from day one, and I don't, I mean, day one from the very beginning, you have got to get to white women, you have got to get your sisters together, that you've got to deal with your consistent historical demonstration that you will choose white supremacy if you feel it protects your interest over causes for justice and true liberation for black people and every other people every single time. Historically, that has borne this out. This has put a new magnifying glass on it. But this is really a conversation that we have been having, like, since emancipation in the United States. So there's nothing new about that. You know, I put up a kind of preemptive thing right after the election on my Facebook status was, you know, I have I have a few, quite a few white feminist friends who were organizing to make sure that number 45 wasn't elected, and they were devastated. They could not believe the results and how the majority of white women voted. And I very nicely, because I care about these women, and some of them have been friends since childhood, it's just like black women showed up and we did what we needed to do because we fundamentally understand intersectionality, whether we call it that or not. And you guys fundamentally don't. Your sisters fundamentally don't. And that work is yours. It is not the job of black women who have more to lose by number 45, who will be affected the most gravely by number 45, to now go in and do that work. So I'm not even having the conversations with people. It's not only white people who are having that in their family. The election was like right before Thanksgiving in the United States. And I had a number of conversations with people who were Latino, who were Caribbean, who are in interracial families, whose families voted in a number of ways, and people whose families voted for number 45. And people had to make very, very hard decisions about what even to do around the holidays. So we look at policy with number 45, but we don't look at what he's actually done to families. You know, he has brought these things up in a way that people are forced to reckon them and forced to make really hard decisions about how you're going to move forward. And in many cases, it goes beyond gender. In some cases, it goes beyond just white folks. But this is a real time, like number 45 pulled the mask off in America. It forces us to stand in place and own where we are in terms of our own racism, internalized or not, or our own tolerance for injustice if we feel that it protects our own interests. And it's hard and it's painful, but it was absolutely necessary at some point, whether it was through him or not, for this moment to happen. I think about emotional labor. And so often I associate those two words with black women and the kinds of layers of emotional labor they do in all kinds of spheres for all kinds of people. 
And when I think about reimagining resistance, what comes up specifically for me are what I call unlikely coalitions. And I feel like that work that you speak of, John Morgan, with that call for black feminists to white feminists to deal with their sisters, the election of number 45 is like this kind of explosion that takes things to global levels, not not ripples, but tsunamis. There's just no way to avoid the absolute devastation that this one human being can cause in all his orange horrificness. And so an unlikely coalition for me is the idea of white liberal progressive women engaging in the specific labor of stepping outside of their own comfort zones and really dealing, as you said, Blair, with what is actual family. Like these are actually going to be, you know, sisters and sister-in-laws and, 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 and brothers, but doing that specific work as opposed to what I think happened, which is there was this call around, well, if there was not enough of a turnout of the African-American community and there was these specific numbers to do with men, we'll talk about that in, in, in part two. But I think those conversations, there is a validity way down an agenda, but I think a focus that requires you to manifest your allyship in this moment. If you say policy matters and therefore presidential politics matters as well as national and local politics, then how do you turn around that statistic that has been there historically, but you've been able to really avoid engaging? If we think of the elections of Barack Obama, the kinds of numbers meant that that number was still there, but it wasn't there in these kinds of numbers. And number 45, I'm sitting here in Accra, Ghana, in West Africa. Number 45 is as much of a conversation as if we just had an election of an American president in Ghana. Such is the power of America's economy, diplomacy, her global stage that she stands on. And the kind of fear on the one hand, and certainly for me, and we'll talk about this again in part two, the numbers of Ghanaian men who support number 45 is just terrifying. So when I think about unlikely coalitions, I remember when the Muslim ban was instituted and there was this kind of coalition between a Jewish woman and a Muslim man, and there was concern about what this coalition represented. But I think in reimagining resistance, that is exactly what we're going to see, the recognition that since the tsunami touches you in every way, unless you're a rich, white, you know, a super rich, white, um, hetero man, then you're involved in this one way or another. And isn't this a moment where that work can be required in ways that it's never been asked of before because it's so broad? And white women writing to kind of lambast and ridicule those white women Republican voters have to replace ridicule with actual engagement. And I wonder for you both, if you think about any other unlikely coalitions that would be interesting as we reimagine resistance and what it might look like in this era, Blake Kelly. I was intrigued by the piece you shared by Melissa Harris-Perry and her very clear-eyed version of the election from the point of view of a political scientist who knows history and can see trends and can see the ways in which trends weren't being bucked in this election. It makes me think that we may need to approach, if we want to do new things, I mean, I think Hillary Clinton represented, at least in part, an effort to do new things, to draw new people to the table, to engage with white women's leadership in a particular kind of way, probably wasn't as bold as it needed to be and as vetted as it needed to be by a more vigorous election process, she argues in that article. I think... 
what it looks like to really make change is to get past this really profound American problem with white supremacy and really ungirding the myth of white supremacy, really laying it bare that working class whites don't really have much in common with a person like 45 or the cabinet he has put in place or any of the people who represent him in terms of their wealth, in terms of their positionality. They have nothing in common with the working class. So the the very fact that he can slide into this position where they feel encouraged simply by his presence and his turning against people of color, against immigrants, against the other. That's classic white supremacy. We might as well go back to Mississippi in 1900. That's Governor Vardman, who's, you know, building Parchment Farm on the backs of, of black laborers and the fear of allowing poor whites to align with them in the post-war moment. And so we have to finally undo that myth. We have to undo the idea that the people who were standing at his rallies would ever become him. That's not actually possible. And in their minds, they think they can, right? If we can just get these colored folk out the way, somehow they will be liberated to become the white person they're supposed to be. How long can you sell that myth? How long can you continue to work in a world where that goes unquestioned? Our nation is founded on that myth. It's time to undo it. And so the coalition would have to include all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds with an honest look at what wealth and capital and access really looks like in this country. Freedom in all forms. was our continuing discussion, Reimagining Resistance in the Era of Number 45. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women of colour podcast. I'm your host, Esther Almar. Our contributors this week are Joan Morgan and Professor Blair Kelly. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM 103.5 studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. 
We are on air in Ghana on Star FM 103.5 and now in London on ABN UK Radio. And we're online. Subscribe to The Spin One on SoundCloud and iTunes. for our second conversation for reimagining resistance. So what about men? 
and activism and resistance in the era of number 45. White men overwhelmingly voted for him. 72% of non-college educated whites and 62% of wealthy educated white men voted for him, as did 33% of Latino men and 13% of African-American men. That's according to the exit polls. So should a part of active allyship include white, liberal, and progressive men doing the emotional labor, the work of engaging and dealing with their white Republican brothers in this era of number 45. So often the left ridicules and dismisses these men, but the reality of a global economic decline and a huge dent in blue-collar jobs has had a major impact specifically on masculinity. America's masculinity construct is rooted in power, and emotionality. A refusal to engage them and that creates disastrous consequences. And aren't these men family literally to these white liberal progressive men too? And what about black men? We have seen high profile black men meet with number 45, from hip hop artist Kanye West to comedian and radio host Steve Harvey. And of course, we've watched black men pastors meet with number 45, both during the campaign and post the election. So let's talk presidential masculinity politics, the deadly seductive allure of Trump and what resistance might, could or should look like for the white liberal male left who claims allyship and the black progressive men in this era of number 45. John Morgan, let me start with you. Your thoughts. So I was in Guadalupe and I was talking to this brother from Dominica. You know, we were talking about number 45 and he could see my just confusion and disgust and he was like, sister, you just have to switch your frame. You know this thing, like you've seen it before. And I, I was like, no, we really haven't. And he was like, you're Jamaican, you've seen it before. Trump is running a country like he's running a, a small Caribbean island. And then I, I just fell out laughing because then I knew like, oh, okay, I've grown up my entire life seeing this. And he was, he, what he had pinpointed in like with humor was this kind of hyper-masculinity this kind of blatant sort of cronying to strictly limited capitalist interests that only serve a very small portion of people, implicit ties between big business and government and cronyism that basically in many Caribbean islands just goes unchallenged because that is the way that politics is done and people don't like it. But there is really no resistance against it because it's the way that it's always been done. And so when I had that framework, it helped me to see what it is that people find appealing about him. It helped me to understand a little more why you would have a Kanye West meeting with him or why you would have a Steve Harvey meeting with him. It's because that seduction, that very like hyper-masculinity combined with the illusion for them of access to power and supreme wealth is very seductive. And yeah, I was as disgusted with them for meeting with him with anyone else. But I, when I, once I understood why and what was at play there, it helped me to understand what the appeal is. And I think understanding what the appeal is, is as important as resisting what it is that he's doing, because you have to understand why people are signing on. And I think they're only not going to sign on when they realize that it's an illusion, that you actually 
don't have access to that hypermasculinity in your own life. You don't actually have access to that power and that level of money. And buying in and voting for it is not going to give it to you. So I think that those things are really important. I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to encourage people on Twitter, the Republicans who are having regret, you know, the Republicans who voted for Trump and are now shocked at what's happening with reproductive rights. I mean, the number of IUDs sales have increased 900% in the United States. That says a lot to me. So there are people who are already very quickly realizing, I'm married to somebody with a green card. Oh, wow, I may not have access to birth control, who were not thinking about these things when they voted for him. But the thing that I'm encouraging them to do is that you can't take back your vote, but you do have Republicans who are up for re-election in the next four years. Put the pressures on your senators, put the pressure on your congressmen in terms of working within the system that you know and support within your own party, that you can put pressure on them. But as a Democrat, I certainly have been putting pressures on our senators, like, do not work across the aisle. Like, there is no aisle, first of all. There's no bipartisan whatever that's going to get us through this. Like, we need you to resist with the strength that the rest of us are resisting. So I think that they still have work to do in ways that are familiar to them, that don't seem like I have to go and be baptized, you know, now in the waters of liberalism and, and go become a Democrat. You can still work in your, in your lane and get some work done. <laughs> Blake Kelly, your thoughts? For people who weren't paying that close attention, like who forgot maybe that they were Syrian or forgot that they love someone with a green card in their hand, all of a sudden waking up to the reality of the, the kinds of things he was saying in that masculinist bluster. It's pretty interesting to watch, particularly the folks who thought that Obamacare and the ACA were somehow separate system. They, they liked the ACA. They hated Obamacare, not realizing. And so out <laughs> of... <laughs> not paying close attention to exactly what's being said, but instead of looking at the style of in which it was communicated. And that's gotten a lot of us in a pickle. I think if anything is gained now, there is this keen paying attention to what's happening and all the ways in which a lot of us are vulnerable and need some government to provide us with equity, equality, a voice, a literal voice, and some sense of participation. So I, I get the, the male macho frame, and I think it is important to make sure that we, we recognize exactly how this all works. I think the other piece of the men, part of it is this white nationalist appeal of manhood, of putting back in place white men as the heads of a white supremacist nation and his very implicit and sometimes quite explicit outreach to those communities and the silence on Holocaust Remembrance Day about Jewish people even being part of the Holocaust, the presence of Steve Bannon at his close right hand, those things are dog whistles. I heard a really interesting interview with Pat Buchanan on NPR 
when Trump first got the nomination, but it was really formidable because he was expressing the desire for a renewal of white supremacy, that we remake a, a country where white men are at the center of the political universe. And the Barack Obama presidency really upended a lot of feelings, even if it didn't change all the policies of the state. But those feelings were at the heart of what the sort of masculinist Trump platform was all about. This moment reminds me of just how much hyper-masculinity rests on emotionality. Your point, Blair, that Barack Obama's presence was like an annihilation of masculinity for those, I would say, particularly white blue-collar men who somehow feel that number 45 represents a resurrection of a seemingly dead masculinity, as if that is somehow then divorced from the policy of governance post the rhetoric of campaigning. I'm intrigued by the notion of people recognizing that presidential politics are literally getting into bed with you if you're with someone who has a green card, if that's somebody who's within your family or within your sphere or your circle in your community. And I think your point, Joan, about understanding the framework is really important because certainly here in Ghana, I've definitely learned one of the things that so many Ghanaian men love about number 45 is familiarity. The number 45 is literally like the dictators across Latin America and the strongmen, we call them the African strongmen, that we had in military dictatorships post Ghana's independence in 1957. The first coup was 1966. Nigeria also faced a whole bunch of military coups as well. We've seen that across the continent of Africa. And there has been this call, interestingly, from American presidents to get rid of this quote-unquote African strongman. It's a dictatorship. You talked about it, Blair, as well, this kind of bluster, I'll fix it, leave it to me mentality, individualized. I'm kind of walking in like the cowboy on the OK Corral. You know, it's like a Western form of masculinism. I'm going to take out my, my, my gun, phallic symbol, and we're going to get all this fixed and everyone's going to be fine. And let the little lady go get the dinner and everything will be good. And she doesn't need to have birth control because I'm going to give her some babies because that's just how potent of a man I am. And so that's really, really powerful here. And there have been, I mean, so many conversations around the numbers of men who simply relate to what we call the Oga. And Oga is this term used in primarily Nigeria, but Ghana as well, that signifies the male head of a village, of an organization, of a, of a clan whose word is law. And everybody kind of does what he says, moves as he moves, and he has a real fix-it mentality. And so I was really struck by the connections because there was a poverty in the race analysis here, but I realized the connection was not for them race, but it was a historical connection that they really welcomed and that was really encouraging. They equally supported Barack Obama for very, very different reasons. And so it's been really interesting to me to gain this understanding. And I think Joan made a point about understanding matters. I think is really crucial because... How you engage in conversations changes when you understand the framework. Certainly it changed for me as I understood the framework. The deadly seduction of number 45's toxic masculinity, I think, should never be underestimated again. You know, Blair, you made a point in the other conversation that these blue-collar men who were at the rallies, who somehow thought that they could access the kind of super-duper billionaire wealth 
that number 45 represents, that somehow voting for him would access them that, is a long-held illusion. But I think it doesn't recognize that that emotionality is as powerful as it never happening is real. And those men moved according to that emotionality. And I think that that has been really underestimated when it comes to our masculinity politics. The other question I'd ask you both then is when we think about allyship, when we think about black progressive men in this era of number 45 and the white liberal progressive left who claim allyship, about the kind of labor they then need to engage in these masculinist circles in dealing with literally their brothers in all kinds of ways as well. So what kinds of labor would you like to see from these progressive men who claim a better understanding of these masculinity issues as regards kind of getting into the nitty gritty of this? Joe Morgan. No, it's funny because I was listening to your question and I just felt myself tense up and I was like, what is, what is that about? And I, and I realized it's because I don't even want to have conversations with these brothers. I don't even want to have the, what is it that we should be doing at this point? What should we be meaning about? What should we be talking about so that we can be better? I don't even want you to come to me with that. I am such at an honest point of go figure it out. We don't come to you and say, how do we blah, 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 and get you to stop engaging in hyper-masculine, oppressive, sexist behaviors. What do we do? We figure it out. Go figure it out. Go figure it out. I feel every black, you want to know the strike that I think should go on? I think every black woman should go when those questions come up from white women and black men and go, go figure it out. Go figure it out. Go figure it out and come back and bring us something. Maybe then we can have a conversation. I've drawn such a firm line in the sand for that for my own sanity. Go figure it out. Because you know what we do? We figure it out over and over and over again, not only just for ourselves, but for everybody else. Blake Kelly. Here, here. <laughs> because, I mean, you know, <laughs> black women voted for Hillary Clinton. Someone I think most of us didn't really even like that much <laughs> in numbers like she was a dictator and we were scared of her. <laughs> That's how hard we voted. For. We came up, brought the children, organized, gave her a little spare change, showed up and voted for someone who we remember what she said about Barack Obama and Michelle Obama. We remember all that stuff as we filled in that box or punched that spot. And we still did that. So and here, Joan, we carried that water. We've been carrying water for everybody on everything. I think sometimes it's good for other people to step up into that gap and figure out how they do this and how they have those conversations. Because we don't, we don't know. We, we don't have that sort of central positionality in a male body that would allow us to sort of see how those things are operating. They need to get to work. They need to build some analysis. They need to stop turning on us and start looking to each other and looking inside and delving into the emotional labor around understanding what this means and how to have better conversations about masculinity that make 45's masculinity look like the fraud that it is. I don't want to allow this moment to pass without saying that that hyper-masculinity also had a great deal to do with why we saw the high numbers of white women who voted for him, because 
that is a certain kind of hyper-masculine, heteronormative relationship model, the powerful man, the quote-unquote beautiful immigrant-turned-model-then-married-billionaire-playboy thing, was a lot more sexy and attractive to certain groups of women than a model of a first female president of the United States. So I think that we have to really look at how that hypermasculinity plays itself out and that it affects across genders. I think that's really important because I think that is the point, that hypermasculinity is attractive across gender as well, and its deadly seduction carries across gender. But I actually think specifically not about our, not about women's emotional labor when it comes to men at all, actually. I mean, I take both of your points about being exhausted beyond exhausted, you know, sick and tired of being sick and tired. I actually think about those men who claim a progressive politics, those men who claim allyship. And when I think about unlikely coalitions, the idea of men coming together to engage and dismantle this kind of hyper-masculinist illusion of supremacy, the notion that you get access to what a number 45 has by casting your vote, and that all the horrendous policy that is the result of that rhetoric, you are not immune from that, that this will actually impact you too. And the idea that it, it somehow won't is part of the illusion that toxic masculinity creates. It's almost like it brings a veil over your good sense. And all you have is the feeling of how much more of a man you can be standing under this particular orange light of number 45. And then that's going to somehow bring you something and give you something special. But I think specifically about the conversations between men and the idea certainly for white, liberal, progressive men who have ridiculed their brothers in all kinds of ways. I'm talking specifically about white men talking to other white men in all kinds of ways and do not engage actively. It's stay as far away as possible and create allyship with people of color. But that actually in this era of number 45 and reimagining resistance, for me, an unlikely coalition is actually men engaging in the work of dismantling this most toxic element of masculinity that seduces you to the point of blindness. It turns you not just against yourself, but your entire communities in particular types of ways. So as we close, I'm just kind of projecting forward and thinking about that tweet that number 45 did regarding protests and the idea of quote unquote going nuclear on those voices of dissent. And historically, we know that has always meant black women's bodies. It's meant the bodies of primarily women of color, but definitely men of color as well. And so given that kind of threat and with number 45, you know, threat and reality are intermingled, interconnected, and it's an intermarriage. I wonder what kinds of concern that raises for you and also what kind of words of defiance you would have for those women who are thinking, well, that kind of tweet is going to keep me home. Like, I'm not going to step out knowing that that possibility is there. Closing thoughts. Let me start with you, Blair. I would close where we began, that movement is necessary, and of course it is always fraught. It is not going to be an easy fight, but I love the idea 
of continuing to resist the normalcy that 45 administration is trying to create in this moment. I think it's it, this goes beyond the sort of normal apparatus of state that makes life harder for women of color. I think this is a particularly awful moment in all its dimensions. I'm particularly struck by 45's hinting willingness to defy courts, to, to talk, call judges so-called judges. We have separation of powers. And so as those things are challenged and eroded, the groups of people who will join a coalition of voices to fight back will increase because this goes beyond sort of the particular concerns of the most vulnerable. It, it makes all of us vulnerable. I think that the, the first people who are suffering, the people who are being caught in a Muslim travel ban right now are the minor's canary of what can happen to many of us. And so I think it's, again, essential to keep going. I'm so encouraged by what I've seen, and I think 45 is so discouraged by it. I think it, it bothers him. And so I, I, I think it's really excellent. Keep showing up spontaneously. Keep popping up in airports. I spoke to uh, law school on Monday. I was like, look, look, lawyers get to be sexy and like activists. Like, go do that work. <laughs> this is a really exciting time to show that democracy does have value and that if we push toward real democracy, we can make some change. Joan Morgan, closing thought to you. That very phrase, go nuclear, is so interesting to me because as a black woman, I actually am kind of used to existing in this space, right? I'm very aware of the vulnerability of my body and the precariousness of my position in the United States and in many cases throughout the world. I think that there are a whole lot of other people who are not used to living with this level of precariousness, right? So there are certain things that I, in the past, have sort of taken for granted that things are not going to go completely haywire, that the United States does have a government structure in place of checks and balances that doesn't always work out for people of color's benefit, but basically just stops the country from just completely running amok. Number 45 challenges that notion and disrupts it. So even the ability to use the term going nuclear brings up a set of fears that I haven't felt since I was really a child and a tween when we were having very real conversations about nuclear disarmament. And I have watched as a young person now, as a person who is good and grown and is going to have someone who is an 18-year-old in July, that we are now having to look at those fears again and those anxieties that we haven't had to address since disarmament, because who carelessly throws around the term going nuclear in 2017, knowing what the history of this country is, knowing that the world is very much involved in an arms race. So I feel it's a little selfish, but I also feel encouraged that the rest of the country is now being made as uncomfortable and nervous and aware of the precariousness of justice in this country as I am. And because black people, particularly black women, are unfortunately used to this and have figured out how to survive within it, I fully believe that there are going to be casualties, but we're going to be all right. But I do believe that that process is a good and exciting 
thing that it is really giving a respect to the country's activists to our progressive leadership that doesn't really take place in government, that takes place in other places, you know, in terms of intellectual work, in terms of grassroots activism, that those folk are actually getting media play. Like, when did, when did that happen? Academics and lawyers are being able to have real say in reshaping the course of something. And so I think it's an exciting time. You know, it's definitely scary. But again, I, I, we're going to be all right. We really are. But if God got us, then we gon' be alright. We gon' be alright. We gon' be alright. We gon' be alright. Do you hear me? Do you feel me? We gon' be alright. We gon' be alright. Huh? We gon' be alright. We gon' be alright. Do you hear me? Do you feel me? We gon' be alright. Uh. We're the survivors. Yes, the black survivors. your hour thank you to professor blair kelly and joan morgan thanks ladies thank you thank you to the spin production team sound editor david mckeever distributor loretta rocker and the aaprc this is reimagining resistance in the era of number 45 a new series of discussions on the spin your hour of talk where smart is also and always global and sexy i'm your host Esther Ama. Responsibility, policy to survive economically. Some people do it comically. Future freedom, equality. Invest your money properly. People owe me your politics. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium 
NPR Distribution and the Public Radio Satellite System.